It's good good to be here. You find yourselves in the midst of a journey going through the story. Uh, MCA went through the story. We started last September and finished it in April. So uh, been there, done that. And uh, probably the most fascinating thing that jumped out to me as I went through the story was that whole upper story and lower story thing that you've been talking about and learning about. How God sees things from the upper story and all the confusion and all the frustration that happens down here is the lower story. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of a heads up. Uh, You've been in this thing now that the day is the 13th week. The next stretch is that grueling part of a marathon. You're going to be talking a lot about prophets and bad kings, and, and it, just, it gets to be tough. But dig in, keep reading, and uh, the bright part of it is uh, Jesus is coming. And I know Keith mentioned in worship time that he hopes he comes back soon. I'm not talking about that part. In a few weeks, you're going to find yourself in the New Testament seeing God's plan being more fully revealed with the coming of Jesus, his first coming. So, In preparation for coming here today, over the past few weeks, I have been asking people this question. If somebody with seemingly endless resources and very credible would come to you and ask you, what is the one thing that you would like to have if I could give it to you? What's the one thing that you would like to have? I've asked uh, basketball players at the pier. I've asked just people I met in town. I asked our Sunday school class. And I'm sure you're all wondering what their answer was. Before I'm going to give you some of their answers, I would like for you to think about how you would answer that. If there's one thing that you could ask for, what would you ask for? And I would just like to pause for just a few moments here, and I would like for you either to make a mental note of it or even write it down in your bulletin or a scrap piece of paper. If you could ask for one thing that would really make your life a lot easier, more enjoyable, whatever it might be, what's the one thing you want? And it's very important that you do this because uh, there is a test. So just take a few moments and either write it down on a piece of paper Or make a mental note of it. If you could ask for one thing. It's that thing you always dream of, that wish that really will come true. What would you want? What would you wish for? If you're not going to do this, you're going to wish you had. Now, have you got it? I would like for you to turn to one of your neighbors and tell them what it is. Can you do that? Just turn to one of your neighbors and say, I wish I could have whatever that one thing is. Go ahead and do it. Don't be bashful. Now, before I give you some of the answers that I got, I'm going to ask for five people to tell me what you wrote down, what your note was. And all of a sudden, this is the point where you get no eye contact from anybody. You're all looking down. You're all looking away. No, not, not me. Not me. And I only want one person upset at me. So I will pick on one person. Then I will give that person the privilege to ask the next person and the next person down the line until we have five people respond what they want. Kim. Oh, you wish you wouldn't have looked up here. What's the one thing you wish? More money? Very typical answer that I got, actually. Okay, now you pick somebody. I think I know that guy. Hey, there he is. What do you wish for? 
youthful legs. If my 40-year-old mind could keep, or my 40-year-old legs could keep up with my 20-year-old mind, things would go a lot better. So some of the answers I got was, uh, let's start off with a real funny one. You youth girls might enjoy this one. I asked a young high school age girl what she wishes she would have. Anybody want to guess? She said, I want a hot boyfriend. <laughs> um, a busy person said that they wish they would just have a, about two more hours in each day. A person, I'm assuming they just came back from a week's vacation, said they would like to have another week of vacation. Uh, a businessman who has went through a lot of frustrating seasons of life says, I wish I could just have some peace and contentment. This one really surprised me. Coming from a lady who, as I observe her, I think she's a very career-minded lady and loves to be out in the business world. And uh, she says, I wish I could just be a stay-at-home mom. Another one said, happiness for my family. The next one comes from uh, before one of our basketball games at the pier. We pray before each game. And so I asked the, the two teams, I said, somebody tell me what you wish for. What's the one thing you want? This one young uh, Amish teenage boy says, I wish I could play Le- LeBron. I wish I could play like LeBron. Another one, this guy's a dreamer. He says, I wish we could have a championship team in Cleveland. <laughs> yeah. Another one said, I wished I had a better job. A mother with a number of children in her house said, I wish I'd have health insurance. A family that is fairly heavily strapped financially said, I wish we'd be out of debt. A young man who has kind of a broken relationship with his family says, I wish I had my family back. A single mom said, I wish to be restored with my spouse. This one was probably one of the most surprising ones to me from a young man about 17 years old. He said, I just wish I could go to heaven. He's 17, and in a period of about three years, he lost both his mother and his father. So now you're wondering where we're going with this. Solomon, the king who had it all in chapter 13 of the story, he had that opportunity, and he knew it was going to come through. He had just received the kingship from his father, David, who you've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And he goes out to a very high and holy place. And one night, God shows up in his dream and he says, Solomon, what's the one thing that you want? What's the one thing that you would like to ask from me? And Solomon said, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom and a discerning heart to rule your people and to make fair judgments to your people. In 1 Kings 3, verse 10, the Lord says, I am pleased with you, Solomon, that you have asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or death or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you ask for. I will give you a wise and a discerning and understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for. Riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. 
And if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commandments as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant where he sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then he invited all his officials to a great banquet. Solomon had that opportunity. God said, what's the one thing you'd like from me? He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for a long life. He asked for wisdom. So uh, Solomon had that privilege of getting whatever he wanted from God, and he asked for wisdom. And like I was saying, somebody said that they would like to have more money. In fact, one of the, my answers was, they said, I wish I had a 100-acre farm down in Harrison County and have a Utica shale well. That wouldn't be a bad deal now, would it? So he didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for fame. He said, just give me wisdom. And as a result, God said, I will give you wisdom. I will give you wealth. I will give you, uh, make you famous. I'm going to bless you and prosper you. He soon demonstrated how wise he was when he made, uh, you'll find it in the story as you read it, the story about the two mothers who had, who had young babies. And the one mother woke up one morning and her baby had died during the night. So she quickly exchanged the dead baby for the live baby by the other mother, took the live baby with her, and the other mother had the dead baby. And they woke up the next morning, and there was this disagreement about who, whose baby is alive and whose baby is dead. So King Solomon, in his wisdom that God had given him, said, well, let's just cut the baby in two, and you will each have part of the baby. The mother, who was truly the mother of the live baby, said, oh, no, don't, don't do that. Just let her have the baby. The mother who truly had the dead baby said, no, that, that's fine. Well, that gave Solomon the answer of whose baby this really was. He proved to them that he truly had wisdom, and he gained the respect of the people. What I'd like to do is we now have looked at how Solomon began his kingship by asking for wisdom. He had that privilege to ask what he wanted for. He asked for a noble thing. He asked for wisdom. I would like to look at some of Solomon's accomplishments but then I would also like to look at where he ended up at. Solomon is one of those people who had a godly heritage. He had a very godly father, a man after God's own heart, was David. And he started out strong. Started out strong. We'll discover that he didn't end quite as strongly as he started. Some of the things that Solomon did during his reign as king... Uh, he built this huge palace for him and his administration. Uh, listen up, food committee. Here's what it took to keep that palace in food each day. It took 100, 150 bushels of flour, 300 bushels of meal, 10 fattened oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, and as extra, he had some gazelles and choice poultry. That's a lot of food. Quite a carrion, isn't it? Gives you some concept of how big his palace was. There was no need for a welfare system or homeland security. First Kings 4.25 says, During the lifetime of Solomon, all of Israel lived in peace and in safety. And from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, each family had its own home and garden. They didn't need any welfare system. There was no hungry people. There were no homeless people. That's how wise and wealthy he became in leading his country. He accumulated some 12,000 horses. He composed 300 proverbs and 1,005 songs. 
1 Kings 4.31 says his wisdom exceeded everyone else's. He had a keen sense of understanding God's creation and science. In fact, it says that kings from every country send their cabinet, their administration to him to learn and to hear of his wisdom. Another big accomplishment that Solomon did, he built the temple for God's presence. As you've been going through the story, you remember that God's presence stayed in the tabernacle, and now they have moved into the promised land and are there, but they still have not built a permanent place for God's presence. Solomon accomplished that. To give you a little bit of idea of the size of the project, this is quite a building project. I'm assuming when you built your church house here, you had a few people working and a few supervisors working, but Solomon had 180,000 workers. 180,000 workers building the temple, some 4,000 supervisors. I would imagine you had several supervisors on the project here, but 4,000, it was a big project. He completed the temple and he had an unbelievable and dedication service for this temple. At the dedication of this temple, they sacrificed 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. They brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, and the presence of God was there, and it says that there was such a, a huge, thick cloud in the temple that the priests and the Levites could not even perform their duties because it was the presence of God was so overwhelming. And Solomon had this great prayer of dedication, this great blessing on the people, and challenged the people to follow God wholeheartedly. It seems from the first time he heard from God in that vision after he became king, and as he was accomplishing all his great things, Solomon had a real connection with God. He invited him into the temple, and God showed up, and he blessed the people, and the people responded, and he proclaimed God, Jehovah, as the only true God. He had a deep, deep connection with God during this time of his life. To give you a little idea of his wealth, the story will tell you that Solomon's income from gold, and gold that he had as his income on an annual basis, is the equivalent of 25 U.S. tons of gold. Now, if I did my math correctly and figure that gold is worth about $1,200 an ounce today, that's $960 million dollars of income only from gold. It says that he had other income as well, so that's just a portion of his income. But his gold income was the equivalent of our, today would be $960 million from the wisest man that ever lived. Who says it's wrong to be rich? He had built a network of fortified cities as strongholds, and yet there was never a war. If you will watch the DVD clip of chapter 13 and listen to Randy Frazee. He will tell you that Solomon is kind of like that experiment that we've all heard about, and maybe some of you have tried it. That if you take a frog, the frog not here anymore? If you take a frog and you put it in a, a kettle, throw it in a kettle of boiling water, the frog will jump out. You put that same frog in a kettle of 
room temperature water and you put it on the stove and you start heating it, that frog just gets accustomed to its surroundings and the water will start to boil and boil and boil until that frog turns into frog legs. They tell me they taste like chicken. That's a little bit what happened in Solomon's life. Like I said earlier, he had a deep connection with God. But he had this, what I call the slow fade. He started fading away from God, fading away from God, fading away from God. He had wisdom, he had wealth, he was famous, and he had a connection with God. But at some point, it seemed like that connection of God, with God, started fading. To the point where, let me read what happened in his downfall. Now King Solomon loved many foreign wives, and loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their God. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, and his father David, as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtor, the goddess of Sidonites, Molech, the detestable god of the Amorites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chesmos, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. That was Solomon's downfall. To us, it's kind of a no-brainer. You're going to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. You're not going to make it. But those wives, even more than having 700 wives, it drew his heart away from God, and he started being an idol worshiper. He turned to idolatry. And slowly his life began fading, fading, and fading until he had lost connection with God. In fact, if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, as Solomon is coming to the end of his life, and he's looking back over his years, He's asking, you know, what was life all about? He kind of found himself in these, in these jars of water with frogs in it. Five, but there's none of them with frogs. Be on the lookout. I don't know if you know the song about the squirrel that went berserk in some little city in Mississippi somewhere. YouTube it this afternoon and you'll get a laugh out of it. But all the frogs are going, so there might be some frogs hopping around. But... Um, Solomon found himself in some kettles of water that started out discomfortable, but he started that slow fade, and all of a sudden, he found himself in boiling water. The first pot I have, if you look at Ecclesiastes, he's reviewing his life, and he says, wisdom is meaningless. Now, do you really think wisdom is meaningless? 
Wisdom without that connection with God becomes meaningless. Here's what Solomon says about wisdom in Ecclesiastes 1.17. Then I applied to myself, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also to the madness of folly. But I learned that this is a chasing after the wind and it's meaningless. He had accumulated a wealth of wisdom. Comes to the end of the life disconnected from God and says, I wasted my life on meaningless wisdom. Now, I'm saying this morning that wisdom is very valuable. The book of James would tell us that. That wisdom is very valuable when you're connected with God. Solomon came to the conclusion, the wisest man that ever lived, that wisdom disconnected from God is meaningless. You go on down a few verses later, and you find Solomon in the kettle of pleasure. Now, how many of you have ever had too much pleasure? I mean, we always want another party, another fun time, another good thing, another good event. Solomon says this about pleasure. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was a reward of my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, all my pleasure was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I enjoy a good time as much as anybody. Solomon had all kinds of pleasurable things that he did in his life. But he comes to the end of life disconnected from God and says, pleasure is meaningless. How many people do we know that fulfill their pleasure disconnected from God with all kinds of things that end up not being all that pleasurable? The pleasure in your life can be a pleasant experience connected with God, but Solomon says, my pleasure disconnected from God is useless. It's a chasing after the wind. We talked some about Solomon's accomplishments. He built a palace, and I didn't go into any detail on the temple and the palace. Read it. Unbelievable the amount of gold that he spent. In fact, he says that in the time of Solomon, there was silver was as common as stone in Israel. If you've ever been to Israel, you know there's stone and more stone and more stone. And did I mention stone? There is stone everywhere. And he says silver was as common as stone in Israel. But all the work, all the building projects that he had accomplished, and he gets to the end of life and says, all my toil and work is meaningless. He felt like a frog being boiled in water because of all the work he had done. And here's what he says about his work. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, what does a man get for all his toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days... His work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. And this too is meaningless. Now I know there's some people in here who enjoy a good day work. It makes their business successful. It grows their business. And there's something about having a good day's work that makes you feel good. But Solomon says it's useless. And why was it useless to him? He lost that connection with God. The next thing he says in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, advancement is meaningless. How many of you enjoy advancement? 
How many of you are glad that you don't have a landline in your house anymore and you have a smartphone in your pocket? You can do your texting, your emailing, and get on the Internet all right. Well, I don't have my... That smartphone is way smarter than I am. I'm glad for advancement. I'm glad that I'm not riding a stagecoach anymore. I'm glad that things advanced. I'm glad I'm not living without electric in my house and running water. I'm glad for advancement. Solomon says all this advancement that we so much enjoy, he said it's all useless. It's a chasing after the wind. It doesn't bring any fulfillment. Why? Because he was disconnected from God. Uh Uh-oh, Kim. Solomon comes to the end of his life. Now remember, he's getting some $960 million a year from gold income alone. And he says, riches is meaningless. And Kim wanted more money. And I do too. That's why that guy wanted a 100-acre farm down in Harrison County with a Utica shale well. That's why a young guy told me he wants a million dollars. Because riches is meaningless? Is riches meaningless? You know, I know some people who have been blessed by God with lots of resources and lots of ability to help churches and mission organizations. Is that riches meaningless? Absolutely not. I'm thankful for every millionaire that God has blessed if they're connected with God. Solomon comes to the end of his life and he says this about riches. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. So from the king who was given the kingship by David, a man after God's own heart, heard from God and said, I'll give you whatever you want. He asked for wisdom and was blessed with wealth and fame. Comes to the end of his life as he faded away from God and said, everything that I have done is wasted, is meaningless. How does that apply to me today? Solomon went from being connected with God, slowly fading away, to coming and saying it's all useless. He had some real neat God experiences. He had the privilege of building the temple and seeing the presence of God fill that temple. He had some real God moments. All of us, most of us, and not all of us, have at some point in our life where you could almost touch, feel, see God, whether it was um, coming home from a mission trip somewhere or whether it was at a men's conference where all of a sudden you said, man, I'm going to press into God. I'm going to be the kind of husband. I'm going to be the kind of dad. You felt so close to God. Or maybe you were at a ladies' conference, and all of a sudden you realize the purpose that God has for you. One of those times for me was when I had the privilege of traveling over to Kenya with Steve Bixler. And I didn't realize that I'm going to be preaching more than I was working. And we were involved in an open-air crusade, and one night we saw a blind man healed. And man, God was close that night. But where am I at now? That was six years ago. Where am I at now? Do I still so connected with God? Or have I faded away and become involved in meaningless stuff because I'm disconnected with God? Don't get me wrong, all of these things are good and valuable to our lives when we're connected with God. We become disconnected with God, it becomes meaningless. I ask you, where are you at this morning? Are you connected with God? 
and he's right there. If so, I tell you, stand firm, but be careful. Because the wisest man that ever lived, according to the Bible, in all his wisdom, stumbled and fell, finished poorly, and all this stuff became meaningless because he lost his connection with God. Maybe you find yourself somewhere in that slow fade. The water's not boiling yet. You're not quite turned into frog legs. But you're not even feeling that. You're just kind of desensitized and you don't really know what to do. Maybe that's where you find yourself in this lukewarm condition. Solomon would say, get reconnected with God. Perhaps you find yourself in a boiling kettle of water and it's killing you. And you know if something doesn't change, you're a goner. You're going to turn into frog legs. I've got good news. God wants to rescue you. Whether you find yourself involved in meaningless work, meaningless pleasure, meaningless whatever it might be, and you feel there's no hope, God wants to rescue you. I wish I had a frog in here and I could hold this frog out and rescue that frog. thought for sure you guys would find me a couple. Walked in here this morning and told Matt I got some frog. He said, you what? And I said, no, not really. I said, have your boys find some for me. I don't think he wanted them to fall in the pond. But imagine yourself being a frog in a, boil a ke- in a kettle of boiling water. God wants to reach in there and rescue you. We don't want to end up where Solomon is, where he finished poorly. I ask you to begin with, what's the one thing that you want? We heard of different things. We heard money. We heard this and we heard that. I want to challenge you in closing. The Apostle Paul says, This one thing I do, I press on towards a high calling. In other words, he says, I'm pressing in. I'm going to stay connected with God. That takes me heavenward, and I want to finish my race. He did not want to be a quitter. He did not want to finish poorly. Solomon started so strong, went through the fade, and finished poorly. You see that happening over and over and over. We all know of some great leader, perhaps in the church, that at some point faded away from God and finished poorly. I want to challenge you to tell yourself this one thing I do, and that is to press into God. The king who had it all didn't finish well. He was totally totally set up for success. His dad handed him a stable kingdom. God blessed him with wisdom and wealth. He was set up for success and finished poorly. If he did it, if we don't guard ourselves, we're going to finish poorly. Let's finish strong. This one thing I do, I press in towards God. I want to reach heaven. Stand with me for closing prayer. God, we thank you for the story that you have given to mankind. And the story as we are going through this book reveals that upper story and lower story. And God, I thank you for the story of Solomon. Lord, we know you blessed him abundantly and yet he wondered from you. God, I pray that you would give us all wisdom and discernment to find our purpose in life and to follow you wholeheartedly and never turn to the right or to the left. 
God help us with the Apostle Paul to firmly and boldly and courageously say this one thing I do. And when we press in towards God, you bless us with riches. You bless us with wisdom. You bless us with pleasure. And all those things that become meaningless when we are not connected with you. So I pray as we go throughout our week to our work, to our places of business, that we would be with the Apostle Paul. We'd press in this one thing we do, and that is to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.